Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 5. The last time we were together, going over this chapter, we talked about the, the power of the gospel. And that it's a very potent faith. It's something that we don't have to be ashamed of. We don't have to shrink back and to hide away. And to be ashamed of anything that God has done for us or will do. Because the gates of heaven will not prevail against us. That is to say that God has given us ability that is so strong and amazing. It is hard, if not impossible, to resist when God is there with it. Well, tonight we want to look at the whole issue of being a witness. And this whole section talks about the idea of transferring all that you've learned inside, not only to your feet in the way that you walk and the way that you live, but what comes out of your mouth and what is expressed from your heart as you bear witness and testimony to Jesus Christ. Uh, In the dictionary, there's a few definitions of witness, and I'd like to read them to you. It said, witness is one who can give firsthand account of something seen, heard, or experienced. A witness to an accident or incident. One who furnishes evidence. Something that serves as evidence or a sign. In law, it is one who is called upon to testify before a court. One who is called on to be present at a transaction in order to attest to what has taken place. I grew up during a period of time where corporal punishment was the agenda or fair of the day. Uh, Those of you who grew up during that time, you know what I mean by corporal. It means paddle applied to the seat of understanding, right? (laughs) To the seat of knowledge. They didn't, guys, I'm telling you, back in those days, they didn't care at all. They didn't spare any rod, stick, or anything that they could get a hold of. But they were always very technical about it. And and when I think of the term witness, I'm reminded of those words. Maybe those of you who can go back this far will remember. The teacher, you'd get in trouble. The teacher, Ral, you come with me. They go to their desk. They pick up that little thing. They start walking toward the door and they go out into the hallway. Then they walk over into the teacher's room next door and they say, excuse me, Mr. So-and-so, I need a witness. That was, and so whenever you, I heard the term, I need a witness, I'm thinking, oh man, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was really bad, but they technically they had someone to witness the incident. So they could say, well, it was appropriate swats. They were perfect, you know? Not that I'm bitter. I deserved every one and twice as many. In fact, there's one that I never got that I'm always thankful for. It's a real illustration of grace. It was in the eighth grade biology class. And Mr. Fry was about the coolest teacher. And he had these big leather bottom wingtip shoes. You, you guys ever have? I have a pair just in honor of him. Uh, 
But he said, look, you guys, I'm leaving the room for five minutes. If I come back and you're standing up, you're going to get licks. And he was a cool teacher. And I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. So immediately I got up and went over and started talking to my friends. Well, he came back into the room and he looked at me and he said, Rao, come with me. And so he went out into the hallway and he didn't have a witness. And I thought, hey, 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 wait a minute, buddy. I know what's going on here. You got to have a witness. And he looked at me and he said, if you tell anyone about what I'm, what I'm about to do, I will get you. And I thought, wow, a threat from this guy. So he leaves the door open to the room. He raises up those big number 12 shoes with the leather bottom. And he gives it like four really hard whacks on his foot. And he said, I'm going to go back inside. You stay out here for five minutes so they think that you're crying. Then come in. <laughs> so I still... I'm owed a few more. But he didn't have a witness, and so it wasn't right. I don't know what this has to do with anything concerning this message. But a witness gives testimony. You can come along and say, look, someone will say, I heard this happened. Well, I heard that this happened. And a witness is somebody who can come along and say, wait a minute, I was there. I hold credibility that... Those who were not there do not hold. Since I saw it, and since I have an understanding of what happened, I become very credible. And one thing that the early church had, and even we have today, is this sense of credibility that we carry because we are in connection with Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to get into this a little further, but there's a few things we need to to note here. There are three witnesses that are mentioned in this passage. Look with me again at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. If you'll remember back, we have mentioned a group of people who were hanging around the church, if not in the church, during John's day. They were known as the Gnostics, and their name implies that they have some special knowledge. And it was very common among them to say that, well, you know, Jesus wasn't a real person. He was a, a phantom who came to the earth. In fact, if you, if you followed him on the beach, there would be no footprints behind him. But he appeared as a human because they held to the belief that all matter was evil. And therefore, anything that was holy and from God could not contain matter because matter was evil. There was also another belief by Serenthus that... Jesus Christ was, Jesus was a real man in Judea, born of Mary and Joseph. And at the time that he became a minister, an itinerant evangelist and miracle worker, it was at that point at his baptism that the Spirit of God came upon him and he became the Christ. And as he was entering the cross, because he couldn't be punished for sin because he was holy, the Spirit of God left him. It's kind of a weird doctrine, but it was being promulgated during his day. And so he says, wait a minute, let me just tell you who this is. This is he who came by water and by blood and who has testified by the Spirit. Now, when you read those passages, you think, man, that's kind of weird. What is he talking about there by water and blood? Well, it's been sort of a mystery throughout history, but I think we have a very conservative interpretation that is used here. 
It could be that he's speaking about the whole idea that when someone is born, there is a presence of both water and blood. There is also the possibility that when Jesus was dying on the cross and the spear, you'll remember, was thrust into his side, uh, both water and blood poured forth from his side. Both of those are fairly decent um, interpretations. I think the most conservative and best is this, that the water that is spoken of is spoken of the baptism. In fact, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 16. Look at Matthew's covering of Jesus' baptism. And when he had was baptized, been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It would probably be best to be understand that this is referring back to a historical moment. A moment in time that was recorded in the Gospels that Jesus Christ came. He was the one who was baptized. And at the point of his baptism, the Spirit and even the Father himself gave witness to who he was. The blood, in a very conservative sense, would speak about his obvious self-sacrifice on the cross. He died a very brutal death, but we understand that in the early chapters of 1 John that it was a propitiation or an appropriate payment for the sins of mankind. So he came by the water, he came by the blood, and by the Spirit. Make sense? The three give testimony to him. All right. How many of you have a King James or a New King James Bible? Okay, I hope I don't freak you out with verse 7. <laughs> Verse 7, some of you, if you have a New American Standard and a few others, does not appear in your text, but it appears in this one. And I'll read it. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these are one. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James, and you read that and you say, how come people say that the, the Bible doesn't teach about the Trinity? Because there it is right there. Well, it's not really there. It's there in this version. And because this is, comes from the authorized version, it has been left in there, but it, it is not necessarily in the best Greek text that we have, the oldest text. And I'll, I'll tell you the story. The Bible did not come to us in English. Neil and the Burns pointed that out tonight. It, it didn't come to us in English. In fact, it came to us as a gathering of, of testimony and stories and the, the story of God that was eventually compiled together. The first writings were on vellum and parchment, which were animal skins, goat skins. But then during the time of the New Testament... As Koine Greek became a language that was not only used widely in the Roman Empire, but it was a language that was used among the Christians. It was very common, it was accessible, and people began to use it. Well, the popular paper of the day was papyrus. 
uh, papyri. And it was a, a group of leaves that were stuck together, woven together, and it had this little paper, and they began to write them. So they were circulated all around. And it was circulated in a very um, informal manner because you've you got to realize that the transformation that took place wasn't first with the written word. It happened in people's lives. And we've, we've studied this before. But holy men were moved or, or brought along, drawn along by the Spirit of God, and they wrote down the things that God wanted them to do. But this is the way it looked. You'd have a, a piece of papyri, and you'd ha- take your little note here, and you'd write your things out, and then you'd pass it on, and someone would take it to another church. Did you hear what Paul said? Did you hear what John said? No, I didn't. Well, send the letter to so-and-so. Well, because it's cheap and, and it's easy to write on, you'd write out another one. And there were copies being uh, transformed and sent all over the world. And they just continued on and on and on. Because of that... Uh, later on, as we begin to discover all the various manuscripts and, and what we'll call a codices, which was a grouping or a binding of all of these parchments together. As they begin to appear, you have the really old ones, the best ones, and then you have those who are more obscure, obscure and later. This particular passage, that little verse 7, is not found in any of the earliest, best, oldest text that we have. The best and the biggest, oldest ones that we have are from the 3rd and 4th century. And they, they provide for us sort of families from which all of the other texts were copied. It just makes sense. It's easy to, to trace back. It's not found in the early, in Jerome's early Latin Vulgate version. Latin Vulgate is simply, it was just written in Latin and was sent out to the Roman culture. It wasn't found in there. In fact, it didn't find its way into any text that we really know of until the 14th century in a Latin text. Now, I I hope you're not bored by this because it's really cool, so I'm going to continue on. Well, what happened is that most of the scholars during that time had copies of various different codices or parchments or fragments of text available to them. We had the printing press that came into to play. And everyone knew that the first Greek text to be printed would be the one that everyone uses. So there were a couple of guys working on it. The first guy was Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros, who was the bishop in Spain, in Toledo, Spain. And he was working on what was called a polyglot. Now that's a cool name. You can call your kids that if you want to. It's a very... Exciting kind of name there. It was a polyglot, which means that it had both, it had two different types of of language. It had Latin on one side and Greek on the other. And it was paid a very high price. It was, it had been came to known as the Complutensian polyglot. I I studied all week just so that I can say that publicly. Um, Well, word of this got out and they, they said, well, we need to get this going. So, there was a guy hired by the name of Erasmus, who was a brilliant Greek scholar. And he had uh, many of the texts available to him, and he was hired to write out a Greek text so that it could be printed. And he made it to the printing press before Francisco did. 
Well, it became famous. It became known as the Textus Receptus. It was the first real Greek text. And he knew from his best text that it didn't belong in this Bible. He said, it's not in the best or the older text. I'm going to take it out. There were a few scholars who said, you need to put it in. He said, look, if you can bring me a Greek text that has this in it, I'll put it in. So that was in 1516. Well, six years later, someone found a weird older copy in the 14th century. And he said, true to his word, he put it in the text. This is probably where it came from. In the earlier texts that that were written, probably on the side, this little statement was written. You ever write in your Bible? I write in my Bible all the time. In fact, that's how I look cool. I seem like I'm just reading out of the Bible, but I actually have tons of notes in there. You write on your Bible. I write in my Bible. Well, it was believed that this little section made it into the text because someone eventually put it in there who was making a copy. Okay, big long explanation. You say, Dave, why is that important? It's important that you know that... Scripture is very reliable because we can trace it all the way back to the beginning. And those who would say, well, there are inconsistencies and there's problems in in the Scripture, in the text. We go, I know. We know where they are. No problem. We know where they came from. It's still God's Word. God still uses it to transform and He will bless it and carry it until He calls us home. And there will be no man, no language, or anyone who is ever able to obliterate God's testimony of Himself and His Word. Period. Verse 8 is in there. Look with me at verse 8. Maybe your Bible says 7. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these agree as one. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he testified of his Son. And he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. And he who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. You know, it's one thing to believe the witness of mankind, but it's another to listen to what God has to say. What does God say about this Jesus? Well, we've seen throughout Scripture what he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we have various proofs, and we have uh, the testimony of the Old Testament throughout prophecy to let us know that this is true. Keep your finger here, or actually you can just mark it, and we're going to spend probably the rest of our study in Acts chapter 1. Turn there with me. I want to bring this idea of being a witness down to a very practical element that we see in this passage. Look with me at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. This begins by Dr. Luke who wrote this book by the Holy Spirit, is writing to his friend Theophilus and states this, I want to let you know all that Jesus began to do, number one, to teach, and eventually in verse two, 
to command to the apostles. This is the real witness that we bear. We bear what Jesus does, what he has done. We bear the witness of what he has taught, what he is teaching us. And we bear the witness of his commands to us. The things that he has done with them and what he does with us is, first of all, the conviction of sin. There's also the desire to know God and then salvation by his own blood. We all who know him and have a relationship with him bear that witness of the things that he has done by his own actions, right? It's true. Secondly, we notice what he has done in teaching His teaching to us gives us a new way of thinking. He tells us to go and sin no more. Don't keep sinning, but move on. He teaches us to forgive and to love one another and to love God. It's a completely new paradigm, a new way of thinking. We bear that witness within us. And then thirdly, his commands, his new requirements, things for us to obey. His commandment is this, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And that's what we know of him, right? We've gone over that all the way through this book. All of his, what he's done, what he's teaching, and his commands. That is the core of our witness before the world. It was the core of the witness of the early saints and as it is with us. Now, I would divide witnesses into two basic categories. Um, you can subdivide them all you want. You can write a book on it, send it to me, and maybe I'll read a portion. But tonight I'm just going to divide them into two. And that would be famous witnesses and not-so-famous witnesses. Famous witnesses are people that we read about in the Bible or maybe some kind of figure that you see in American history or world history that is just a dominant force, someone who gladly stands up and proclaims the goodness of Jesus, a real witness of what he's done. I'd like to read you the words of uh, Paul Hewson. Maybe you guys know who that is. Bono, from the band U2. I know your jaws are going to drop, but please forgive me. This is what he said in an interview. He said, no, it's not far-fetched to me. He said, look at the secular response to Christ's story. It always goes something like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. Had a lot to say in the lines and other great prophets, but... Be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, but actually Christ doesn't allow that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying that I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying that I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. They can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know we're going to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my goodness, he's going to keep saying this. So you're left with this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking the nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was like some of the people we've been talking about earlier. This man was strapping himself to a bomb and said, the king of the Jews, and put it on his head. And then they put him on the cross. Okay, martyrdom. 
Here we go. He says, bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking. The idea that the entire course of civilization over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Now, he said this in response to a question in an interview. And in that little section there, for whatever you think about Bono, whatever you think about who he is, that seems like a really strong testimony about Jesus. Okay, that's a very famous person. We love to hear what famous people have to say. But what about you and I, the not-so-famous people? What do we have as a witness? Well, first of all, Notice this, is that your witness is uniquely yours. The witness that we have been given is unique. There was the witness of the water. There was the witness of Jesus' blood. There was the witness of the Father in heaven. But now you and I bear with us this unique opportunity to tell of who Jesus is. Now that's pretty cool. Because it's been thousands of years, and yet you and I have been transformed. If you have been born of the Spirit of God, you're sitting there right now thinking, you bet, I can remember how I was transformed. You bet, I can read in the Scripture, I know what He's done for me, and I give testimony to it. Well, let me tell you, the testimony that you have contains all that Jesus began to do, teach, and command, but it's yours. It's yours. It's like being a member of a 20-person family and saying, this is my family. Now, everyone understands what you mean when you say, this is my family. You're not saying, this family belongs to me. When you say, this is my God, you're not saying that, oh, this God belongs to me. What you're saying is, I know Him. I am a part of Him. And I give testimony to the validity of who He is. It contains the gospel of Jesus. It's from Jesus. It's by Jesus. It's for His glory. And it's for this reason that we're made. Look with me at verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. We know what a witness is, but where are we to be witnesses? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Three places here are mentioned. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Judea or Jerusalem, was where the gospel began. It's where Jesus was crucified. It's where it all began. But then from there, you begin to move out just a, a few miles away, and you come across Judea and Samaria, and then he widens the circle into the, the rest of the world. And we here today, and it's been brought up to you before, are about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. We are the uttermost parts of the world. So in truth, the gospel has traveled all the way around. And it's been doing it for thousands of years. But let's bring it back down to the practical application to you and me. To the two of us here. My testimony, when, it's, when I speak of my Jerusalem, is my inner circle. The first, the testimony must be alive in your heart and in your mind. It must really exist in the core of your being and who you are. You have to know what you know. 
And if you don't know and you're not sure, you need to spend time on your knees. You need to spend time in this book. And you need to pour out every concern to God and say, I'm not necessarily for sure about this passage, Lord. Or I was challenged at work today. And so I'm bringing it to you. And I'm going to lay it before your feet. And I'm going to ask you to reveal by your spirit what exactly you were talking about. And as the witness begins to grow in you, you strengthened inside in your Jerusalem. There's a real reality in testimony and boldness begins to well up inside of you your inner circle your life and your inner circle is also your home your mom and dad your spouse your kids your best friend it's it speaks of that place of close intimacy and that is really our first mission field it's not only ourselves, but our family, friends, and everybody around us. You know, it's easy to, to take off and to go and do something, which is great. But oftentimes we neglect not only ourselves, but the people closest to us. All right, we move on from there to Judea and Samaria. And this is your widening circle. And this speaks of, I would say, your relatives, your co-workers, your church, your past the town that you live in, all of this, this widening uh, circle of your culture and the people that you have influence. Everywhere that you have influence beyond certain intimacies, that is the place, that is the place of your Judea and Samaria. You begin to move out and, and share the gospel with people at work, the person at the gas station, the people that the person that you meet on the street. It's it's stepping up and sharing the gospel when it's unpopular. Maybe it's writing an article to an editor and saying, Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Whatever it may be, it is this broadening circle of influence that you have. And then it says to the uttermost parts of the earth, and that is the outer edge. And I would say this is simply preaching the gospel, its missions, its investments of time, money, resources, all that you have in a broadening circle. It's the full compass of our lives. Now, there's something that is explained here on how this is to be done. Because when I think about how this is to be done, to be a witness, I get scared. I don't know about you, but for me, I wasn't always that bold. I would have a tendency to sort of shy away and maybe not share my faith. But there came a point as this began to grow inside of me, I couldn't keep it in. I would find myself engaging in conversation or speaking to people or writing to people about the gospel. And I couldn't stop it. And it was happening in all different arenas. But there was something, there's a reason that it happened. Look with me at verse 4. Back up to verse 4 in chapter 1. He says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were a scared, insecure, confused band of the believers. We like to look at them as great apostles, but they were people just like us. They were nobodies. They hadn't made it in the big time in the Bible yet. They hadn't done any amazing, they had a few amazing works, but nothing of real notoriety. And he said, wait for the Holy Spirit. John baptized you with water, 
but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in just a few days. The baptism of the Holy Spirit gives the unction and ability to witness and to share the gospel like a champion. It's the best way I can put it. It gives you the ability to go beyond the natural way that you normally go through this life. It it makes you into this powerful, ferocious person who is able to, to, to look at the enemy, to look at the opposition, to look at those who are hurting and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about who he is. I have a witness inside of me and let me tell you the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 5, when he speaks about the baptism of the Spirit, I know immediately that begins to evoke a lot of stuff in your mind. Some of you think, oh, okay, this is where it's getting weird. All right, honey, let's sort of back out of the sanctuary quietly. And some of you, you're, you're sort of already getting on your tiptoes going, glory, I'm ready right now. It's the whole body of Christ, and it's awesome. Everyone responds differently to the move of the Spirit. But this is what you need to know. The proof is in the pudding. When you are filled or baptized with the Spirit of God, He's speaking of an overflowing, a completely coming upon your life in such a way that you're energized, your speech, your feet, your life is enlivened in such a way that you cannot help but speak the truth. It's been put like this, and I'll use the old analogy. It's like completely filling a bucket to the top and then telling someone, now, I want you to take these buckets and run as fast as you can. Well, immediately, what happens? If you take a bucket full of water and you begin to run, it begins to spill out all over everyone and everywhere. And the, the idea is that the water begins to fill up in your life. The Holy Spirit begins to pour into your life so much so that it begins to overflow. And as it floods, everywhere that water, you know, we live in a desert, everywhere the water goes, life begins to spring up, doesn't it? Life springs up with the presence of that water. He who follows me out of his innermost beings will flow, what? Torrents of living water. Life. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, God does something in you that allows you to be the person that you always wanted to be. Now, initially, some who have experienced this baptism have had ecstatic experiences. Others have said, I didn't feel much. But the question is not how high you jump, but how straight you walk when you land. How straight do you walk when you land? I don't want to be too technical here, but I I must state this. When you're born into the family of God, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit into the family. But what he's speaking of here is a continual filling from time to time, a time of refreshment, drinking in God's resources and his ability to be witnesses. Power and ability. You're like a person, a doctor, who understands that there is a disease that is destroying the world and you have the antidote and you can't wait to share the antidote with all of those who are sick and dying. It's that type of urgency. Before we sing a a final couple of songs, I want to do something different.
I'm not going to call you up here to an altar. Although we do that, and this is a, a part of our church, and I'm thankful that we do. But I want to challenge you to be a little introspective right now. In your heart, in your mind, in fact, would you just bow your heads? I think I'm kind of distracting. The reason we bow our heads is so that we're not distracted around and we can think about the Lord. There's nothing really holy about it. Consider in your mind right now, just ask the Holy Spirit, am I, Lord, giving you all that I have? Am I functioning with real power to share the gospel? Would I say that my life is overflowing with God's ability and resources, blessing others? If it's not, I encourage you to take that conviction from the Lord with you tonight. Take it home with you. Get by your bed tonight. Get on your face, on your floor before the Lord and say, God, I know that I'm not where I need to be, but Lord, I know that you have ability. We've talked about the baptism of the Spirit. And Lord, I want to be baptized with your Spirit. I need it. Lord, I, I need your power. And then receive it and follow Him. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.